Well, hello again. This is Shane, and this is Heartlines. Now, this is this week. I have an artist, singer, songwriter, poet. His name is Latch. How are you doing, Latch? Hello, Shane. So you're over in Edinburgh. I used to live there for actually three years between 2013 and 2015. So I want the, the listeners to know a bit about you, Latch. So, so you're an artist of, of many di- different kinds, I guess. So where are you from originally? Are you from the States? Where are the States are you from? I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I lived for a very long time on the Lower East Side of Manhattan before moving to Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you, you moved around a bit. You, were, you, were, you, you started the New York Anti-Folk Festival or the New York or Anti-Folk Scene. Can you talk about the Anti-Folk Scene or how, how that came about? Well, Anti-Folk... Uh... I was playing the folk bars, the so-called folk bars in the West Village, Greenwich Village. I, had, uh, I knew I was a songwriter, and um, I, I, I came into songwriting through hearing punk. Uh, Sex Pistols, The Clash, The Dam, The Jam, all coming in from the UK. And then checking out the New York scene with television and Ramones and Blondie and that kind of thing and started writing songs. And then when I realized I was a songwriter and writing songs, I decided to uh, go backwards, you know? So going backwards, I discovered The Beatles, The Doors, Woody Guthrie, you know, any, anybody who wrote a song, I checked them out. Um, and I saw, I was reading a biography on Dylan and saw that he was, got his start doing these open mics at a club called Folk City in Greenwich Village. Then I opened up the Village Voice newspaper and saw that Folk City still existed and still had an open mic on Monday nights. So I was like, damn, I'll go check that out. So I went there and uh, they didn't really cotton to my uh, combination of Ramones and Woody Guthrie style. (laughs) And I kept getting kicked out of the clubs. Now, what you have to understand is by this time in the 80s, what they were calling folk wasn't folk. It was the people who Dylan left behind when he went electric and said, we're never going to let this happen to us again. Uh, And so they circled their wagons and had their folk festivals and their little folk section in record stores. There used to be a thing called record stores. And... uh, so when I came along, I guess I was a threat to that. I kept getting kicked out of the clubs. I'd hang out in the alley behind the clubs. And pretty soon there'd be like 25, 30 people hanging out with me in the alley, playing guitars and drinking beers. And I was like, we don't need these clubs. Let's start our own club. And I moved to the East Village, to the Lower East Side, a street called Rivington Street. I opened up my own illegal after-hours club called The Fort. And... Um, this, the local newspaper, the week we opened, called it the most dangerous block in New York City. We took that as a badge of honor. We blew that article up and put it on the wall. And uh, we would open up at about midnight, stay open to two, three in the afternoon. Windows were blacked out. No one had clocks. Uh, we let all the, the misfits and weirdos in for free, and we charged the yuppies coming off their uh, cocaine run exorbitant prices to come in and buy our beer. And the week we opened, the West Village held the New York Folk Festival. So we decided to have the New York Anti-Folk Festival. And 
it was me, it was an artist named Cindy Lee Berryhill, uh, Kirk Kelly, Roger Manning, Billy Nova, Billy Syndrome, various bunch of uh, misfits. <laughs> and uh, that club ran for a year and a half. And that's where the anti-folk scene came out of. And then the cops finally said I had to get out of there. And uh, the fort then became a mobile club, which would inhabit other clubs in New York for a period of time, ending at a club called Sidewalk Cafe on Avenue A, where we were there for 15 years. And I hosted the open stage, the the anti-hoot nanny, every Monday night there for 15 years. It was New York's longest-running open stage. And then when I moved to Edinburgh, I did the Fringe, and I did the Anti-Hoot at the Fringe at the Gilded Balloon, as well as my one-man show. And then eventually I was at uh, booking and helping to run Henry Cellar Bar for about two years, and I ran the Anti-Hoot there on Monday nights. Yeah. Now, when you started the Anti-Hoot, you have lots of... um, You have lots of... Well, you would say mainstream artists that like would would probably have to would feel like they might have thank you in some way for their success, like Laura Marling, Beck, and stuff like that. Do you feel any pride for having brought these into the world, like uh, giving them a stage to perform, or just do you feel like you know I could have been like them, or are you are you proud of that fact that you brought you've given them a chance to shine? Hmm. That's interesting. I haven't thought of the word pride or proud in a long time. Mm. I guess so. You know, I've always said that um, being proud of anything genetic is a waste of time. I mean, being proud that you're white or black or Jewish or uh, gay or blonde hair or brown eyes, you have nothing to do with that. You know, yeah. your, your dad forgot to get to the pharmacy in time one night <laughs> and nine months later you appeared and you had nothing to do with any of that stuff. To say you're proud of that stuff doesn't make sense, but to say you're proud of something you've done, you know, something you've created or accomplished or did, that that makes sense. I, I think that's okay. So, uh, yeah, I worked hard uh, creating that community and mm. keeping it together and uh, and it it helped keep me together. So um, I guess we're all proud of each other on the scene. I, I, I see everybody who came out of that scene as brothers and sisters. I don't see any kind of, there's never any kind of, oh, any jealousies or anything like that. I mean, yeah, everybody's successful in their own way. Uh, you you have to decide for yourself what, you, what you're going to measure as success. You know? That's true, yeah. Now, what was, what, was New, what was the New York scene like back in the 80s? Was there... I, would you say your style of music or what you were going for was kind of a subculture? Well, I was, I, there was nothing, uh, there was nothing manipulated or, or, or uh, there's no real plan. We yeah. were just, we were just trying to be ourselves and, and, and found that most places wouldn't let us be ourselves, you know? So if you tried to play, I mean, back then, if you couldn't play CBGBs as a solo acoustic guitar player, uh, and so you couldn't play the punk clubs, and you couldn't play the singer-songwriter or the folk clubs with the kind of punk attitude that we had, so there was nowhere for us. We had to create our own place. I urge anybody listening, 
not to wait for permission to uh, be who you are or to do what you want to do. Like right, even right now in the middle of the pandemic, a lot of people are saying, oh, they can't perform. If you really want to, you could figure out a way to do it, you know? Uh, call up a bunch of people, send out invites, do it outside, have picnic blankets. You don't have to wait for permission. Mm. I feel like the anti-folk scene or the, the way the anti-folk music is portrayed is kind of like, it's not quite punk. Is it somewhere between punk and kind of folk or is it, is it in its own little kind of category you feel like? Anti-folk is its own thing and it's nothing. Nothing. Okay. I, I've, I've listened to your song. I've listened to a couple of your songs. I like that song, Purr Town. You talk about New York and it's changing and talk about boutiques and all. And at the end of it, you say, oh, look, there is boutiques, you know. So New York has changed from being like, you know, really kind of gritty to more gentrified, you feel, over the last few years? Not the last few years. It's funny listening to people saying how New York is dying now and how everybody's leaving New York now. The New York that people fantasize about was over by like 1988. Um, that's when Giuliani was coming into power and he was a complete tyrant. And that was the year of, the, of what was the Tompkins Square Park riot. So people could probably Google that. And okay. the police uh, rioted. It wasn't the people that rioted. It was the police rioted down the street, beating everybody up hmm. uh, with their badges taken off. And it was... Uh, to clear it out so that the real estate real estate people could come in and yuppify the place. So uh, when I first started the fort in the early 80s, um, where I was on Rivington Street on the Lower East Side, it was very, very dangerous. You know, there was a lot of uh, heroin and a lot of gangs. Uh, but the flip side of that is that the rents were really cheap <laughs> and you had a lot of freedom. And so there was a huge amount of creativity. There was art everywhere. You would walk down the street and just see statues in the middle of the street, or people would just paint their canvases in their flat and then go out in the middle of the night and we paste them to the side of a building, you know? Um, that's how Keith Haring first got started. And uh, Basque um, was all just... Um, completely illegal rebel stuff, but it was thrilling and exciting. Um, we, New York traded that uh, for high real estate prices and some, you know, sanitized safety. Uh, and, it, and once the digital, uh, and, and then, in the, then crack uh, and AIDS hit, and that decimated the artistic population. Mm -hmm. And then when the digital uh, world arrived, the thing that made New York, places like New York and London and uh, Los Angeles, these kinds of places vital was you had to go there to be an artist. You had to go there to be seen. You couldn't hang out in, um, you know, a small town and get heard of or, or, or be with like-minded people. You had to go to the big town. But eventually with digital, you could be anywhere and mm. create, you know? So yeah. the reasons to be paying super high rent and be so stressed out and everything and be in New York just disappeared. I mean, I left New York 10 years ago and I, I say it's the most New York thing I ever did. So when I was a student, 2007, okay, I was, I was staying in Lexington 125th. Oh, in New York City. Yeah, New York City, the, yeah. 
just the beginning of Harlem. Yeah, Harlem. It, it kind of felt more like uh, like Puerto Rico country. is very like kind of Spanish kind of um, mm-hmm. yeah, like Hispanic kind of community. It was beautiful. It, I wasn't paying New York prices. I wasn't paying like you know five dollars <laughs> for a coffee. It was everyone was like you know cheap as chips. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. That was a different New York, you know. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't like to live in the New York City. It's, it's just too stressful, you know. People are in the rat race, you know. There's a. Have you ever heard of a movie called Brother from Another Planet? No. So there's a movie called Brother from Another Planet. It's about an alien comes to Earth. He, he he's humanoid, but he's he's black. He's not white, and he okay. arrives in in New York, and he befriends this kid, and uh, they're on the subway heading uptown, yeah. and the kid's sort of been messing with them a little bit. And as they get to the 125th Street station, the start of Harlem, the kid turns to the alien, the black guy, black alien, and, and the, the subway train is filled with white people. Yeah. And he turns to the alien, he goes, watch me, watch me make all the white people leave the train. And it pulls into 125th Street and all the white people get off because they don't <laughs> want to go to Harlem. And the alien's like, how did you do that? <laughs> no. no. Yeah. Like... In New York, okay, or for yourself growing up, have you always had that art, artistic kind of uh, mindset? Like, would you have ever perceived or, or seen yourself being in a, like a nine-to-five job? Or would you go to college, like a business studies, or did you study art, or what did you do? Well, I started playing music. I started playing piano when I was five. Oh, okay. And I, I think I already had music in my head. I, I found out several years ago back that not everybody always has music in their head. I thought everybody always has music in their head because I always have music in my head. I wake up and there's music in my head. I go to sleep. There's music in my head. I dream and there's music in my dreams. So it's like breathing to me. So I was really shocked when I realized, you know, I was talking to people. I was like, you have a song in your head right now, don't you? And they're like, no, what do you mean? I was like, you, you always have music in your head. No. I was like, wow. I thought everybody did. So I've always had music in my head and I started playing piano at five. Mm. I was a classical music, classical musician. Um, and you couldn't take me away from the piano. I'd sit at the piano for five hours, six hours and be off in another world, you know, through it. And when I was 15, 16, uh, that's when I first heard uh, the Sex Pistols and decided, ooh, I think I want to try that. You say piano, now that, that, that brings it to another point. Um, you have a song called Buckethead, okay? I, I, I love it, it has a catchy riff, has a, has, a, has a great piano bit. I, I feel it's got, kind of, it's, it's got kind of like, um, you know, a Jerry Lee Lewis feeling going on there. Were you a fan of Jerry Lee Lewis? I got to see him play one time. Yeah. Uh, Viper Room in Hollywood. He was very cool. I was never a big Jerry Lee Lewis guy. I'm not really influenced by much. Uh, I'm more of the influencer. <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the piano players I grew up listening to, I mean, the, the, the main one that I listened to for the first 10 years of playing was Arthur Rubinstein, the classical piano player. Um, and then I heard... Uh, <laughs> I, this is actually in, in, in one of the episodes from the BBC Four uh, series, The Latch Chronicles, mm-hmm. about how um, I would be in the car 
going to piano lessons. My mom would be driving me to piano lessons. That was the only time I really heard pop music because the AM radio, like I got to control the AM radio for the 20 minute drive to the piano teachers and back. And I would flip the stations and this one station came on saying, this next artist made $50 million this year playing piano. We'll hear his latest song when we get back from commercial. And I'm like, he's made $50 million playing piano. This must be the most amazing piano player ever. Don't turn it off. I got to hear this. I got to hear this. And it came on and it was Elton John playing Crocodile Rock, which is like, dinky, dinky, dinky. Yeah, dinky. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, he's made $50 million going dinky, dinky, dinky. I'm memorizing four pages of Bach. I mean, yeah. this is crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe this rock and roll thing could pay off. And then I remember hearing The Doors and really liking uh, Manzarek's uh, piano playing. I didn't know who he was at the time. I naturally thought that the guy singing was the guy playing. So when I finally realized like Jim Morrison was the singer, Ray Manzarek was the keyboard player. I was like, oh, that's wild. And then I liked um, uh, Tom Robinson band had a good piano player. And Springsteen, like the good thing about Springsteen was he was the only piano books in the stores where it was actually what the guy was playing on the record. So a lot of the piano music in the stores wasn't necessarily what they were playing on the record. So that was pretty cool to be able to play what I was hearing on the record. And then when Elvis Costello came out with Steve Naive on piano, I was like, this guy knows what he's doing. And I think this guy's been influenced by classical because mm. he plays a bit like me. Yeah. So I would say the, those were more of the people, but for me, it's not a matter of much as being influenced by somebody. It's more like finding somebody who's doing what I'm already doing and realizing, wow, I'm not the only person doing it. It's more like confirmation that you're not crazy. That reinforces that you're doing something that's, you know, popular or do you, do you look for popularity or do you want to, you want to create something that's maybe only a, a few people are, are creating? I want to, I want to try to put what I hear in my head outside of my head. That's, I think that's like any artist. I think, yeah, I think artists just want, like, especially in comedy, for example, and you've, 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 you've moved to comedy as well. It's like trying to put that whatever joke or whatever anecdotes in your head onto paper and then put it into actual work on stage, you know, or as you do in the, in the Latch uh, uh, Chronicles. The Latch Chronicles is very interesting because uh, is, it, is it based on true stories or is it just kind of like more of a, a made up kind of uh, half fact half fiction sort of thing going on it's based on true stories yeah okay true stories i listened to the one episode of, uh when you went to north beach and and you you stumbled upon your the, the club that you'd end up uh running your, your own how long did you end up in san francisco for how many years were you there for i was in san francisco for about a year and a half okay it's a beautiful, beautiful city yeah it's a lovely um, city had some lovely times there yeah um but i reached a point in san francisco where I felt I wouldn't grow as a songwriter if I stayed there um, because it was a very, the motto in San Francisco and a lot of other places at that time was it's all good. People would say, it's all good, man. And that was the way they'd be like, Hey, don't stress out. Don't get upset. Blah, 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 blah. It's all good. And I'd be like, but it's not all good. I remember being at an open mic and I had written a new song and I wanted to gauge 
the reaction to the song. Yeah. And I got on stage, I played the song and the room went crazy. And I was like, oh, great. This song's a keeper. This, they like this song. Mm-hmm. Came off the stage, the next person went up and they completely sucked. And they got the same applause I had just gotten. Because it's all good, man. We have to encourage everybody. And I was like, no, no, no. That's, that's not going to work. You know, in the anti-folk scene, we were and are a community. And we're supportive of each other. But we don't let people get away with bullshit and we, we mm. criticize each other. We're critical and we, we need that. We invite that because the idea is to get better. No, to- totally. I mean, if, if people are telling you you're, you're all good when you're not actually good at that point, you're going to go here. You're going to have a false sense of, 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 you know, entitlement and expecting that you will, you should be getting the, you know, the gigs or the perfect, uh, you know, opportunities all the time. You know, if you're not, if you're not good enough, you're not going to get that, you know, or if you're told you're good enough and you're not good enough, then you're going to be like, hold on. You told me I was good, but you know, who are we to judge? You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's also, you have to be careful of following compliments into conformity. And is your goal to conform so that you can, you know, sell or is your goal to top what you last did to, um, excite your true inner nature to you know so you know you could i mean we all know so many artists that sell millions and millions of record and we hate them Mm. you know their stuff is bland corporate crap the the there's a conveyor belt in in the uh military industrial entertainment complex that needs to keep putting out the next box of cereal whether that box of cereal is an album or a tv show or whatever it's it's always got to put out the next one and i think that these forces that are in charge of that um they they cottoned on a long time ago of the danger of rock and roll of the danger of art and when i think it probably i we we know that the cia had infiltrated the um modern art movement going back to jackson pollock that's established we know that they were screwing with hollywood stars like gene seberg during the 60s to discredit the vietnam war i have a song about that called 60s girl on one of mm-hmm. my albums uh they were doing it to phil oaks and when John Lennon had said that he might ref- might play outside the Republican National Convention in 1972. They just said they just said we're not going to let anything like this happen again. Yeah. And every once in a while, someone breaks through before they can get to them. But they get to them, you yeah. know, whether it's uh, Kurt Cobain or or whoever, you're, you're, you're going to be gotten to one way or another. You're either going to be given everything you want, so now you're a good, per, good lad, good toady, yeah. or they'll f- find a way to take you down. Um, yeah. I don't think I'm being paranoid about that. I just think it's looking at, at what's been going on. So if you look at the – I mean, can you tell me somebody in the top 20 in right now who um, – is saying anything dangerous or um, truly artistic or rebellious or exciting? No, not really. I, I find I find 
the world has... No, not really. No, not really. So your answer was no, no not really. No. Okay, so why do you think that? Because those people are out there. We're out here. So there yeah. must be forces making sure that they're, that they're not. And go on, kick back and listen to Louis Capaldi and Ed Sheeran and, you know, whoever. You know, yeah. woohoo, you know. Yeah. And meanwhile, you've got nationalist fronts taking over countries from Hungary to, 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 to the United States. To, mm. to the UK, you know. No, it is. I mean, people don't stand for as much maybe these days as they did back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or they were perceived to be standing for something and then, you know, uh, snuffed out or whatever because they're talking too much or, or they're, they're going above their station a little bit, you know what I mean? What's the biggest concert you've ever been to? Biggest concert I've been to, I would say... Most people. Most people. It was Slane Castle. And it was 2004, and it was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And how many people were there? Well, Slane Castle can hold about, I'd say about 35, 40,000 people, I'd say. Okay. And yeah. the Red Hot Chili Peppers put, did a good show. They got everybody going. Everyone had a, it was going crazy, having yeah. a good time. Yeah, Chili's are, okay. yeah, they might be on. Now, imagine... Imagine if you are uh, in the government at that show. Okay. And you see half an hour into the show when Anthony Kaidas says, everybody put your hands up. 30,000 people put their hands up. Yeah. And you're thinking, what if his next sentence is, fuck the government? What goes through your head? Are we going to let this happen? Hmm. Pro no, probably Power not. No, now yeah. imagine if it, imagine if it's an Oasis concert. There's two hundred thousand people hanging on every word of Liam Gallagher's, and he decides to use that moment to tell everybody to storm Buckingham Palace and fuck over the monarchy. Well, I think Liam Gallagher has a different standing. He's a working class kind of guy, you know. So he'd probably get away with saying something like that because it all go, yeah, we we agree with him, you know. Whereas okay, so two hundred thousand people are going. You know, screw yeah. the monarchy, screw the monarchy. And now you've got the, the, at a concert like that, there's going to be government agents there. There's 200,000 people there. Yeah. There's going to be security. There's going to be people there. And they're going to, so they must be looking at, you know, a pop star on stage going, he's got more power than Boris Johnson. More people are going to, when, when John Lennon said, we're more popular than Jesus Christ. That was a statement, I mean, right, yeah. Happened. Yeah, true. No. It, it yeah. was worldwide. That was the focus of the entire world for months. And he was just some 20-year-old punk from England gobbing off. But look how yeah. much power that was. Now, that's scary to people who are in power, who are uh, not ready for change, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, true. I'm quite, I'm quite comfortable in my anonymity. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got it. The thing is, the reason I brought you on is because to bring up your, your fringe memories, okay? I want to talk yeah. about your, your debut show, The Day I Went Insane. What was that about? Well, The Day I Went Insane was um, sort of memoir anecdotes. Okay. That became a book, and, and it, was that, it was that from that book. It's unpublished mm -hmm. um, because I, I ended up working on another book. But um, the stories from The Day I Went Insane formed the basis of the uh, – Latch Chronicles, the BBC show. The BBC had approached me uh, 
about doing a uh, show on BBC Four. And um, my friend here in Edinburgh, uh, who his company produced that show, he said, hey, you know, the BBC, wants, BBC Radio 4 wants to do a show with you. I was like, oh, okay. And he said, well, they see you as sort of like the next David Sedaris. He's, he's a very brilliant comedian. I'm nowhere near as good as Sedaris. But they were like, uh, they see you as the next David Sedaris, and they're going to do your show like his. You'll just read like 15 minutes from the stage a story you've written. That'll be the show. It'll be really easy to do. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, okay. And my, and my friend uh, Richard, uh, the producer, he's, um, well, you don't seem too excited about this. And I said, well, what's, it doesn't seem too exciting. I'm just standing on stage reading a story. He said, mm-hmm. yeah, but it's BBC Radio 4, man. It's one of the biggest talk radio stations in the world. I was like, I'm from New York. I don't really, I know Howard Stern. I don't really know BBC Radio 4. And then he said the magic words. He said, don't you realize that's where Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was first broadcast. And that's one of my favorite things of all time is the original Hitchhiker's Guide radio drama. So I was like, okay, well, screw just reading from the stage. I want synthesizers. I want science fiction noises. I want a psychedelic oral landscape going on at all times on this show. And that's how Latch Chronicles turned into the sort of production that it turned into yeah Uh, we did we did three seasons and um as you know i have uh the only way to get my stuff digitally is through uh bandcamp so i've prohibited my stuff from being on spotify or any of those other ripoff artist uh radio stations there's a few of my songs on them because they're on compilation records Mm. and to try to get it off of there is just a nightmare so but the 90% 90% of my stuff is only available through Bandcamp. And I don't know, maybe I could tell your listeners latch.bandcamp.com yeah. yeah. now, or we'll repeat it later. No, I'll, I'll put it, I'll put it in, the, in the link. I'll, I'll repeat it as well. I'm also part of your Bandcamp as well, you know? So I've listened to some of your songs. I like, the, I like your little, you have these tongue-in-cheek songs. I like got the song uh, Tonya. Well, I guess that's about Tonya Harding. Have you seen the documentary? Yeah. What's, in, what's in the documentary you like? Or the movie, sorry, the movie. I didn't see the documentary or the movie, but that's not a tongue-in-cheek song. I think that's a tragic song. <laughs> it, oh, yeah. it, it is. But if you watch the documentary in the movie, that, 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 they tell different stories, you know. I, t- I, I felt right. in, in the movie, they felt that Tonya was, was, was innocent because she wanted some harm to come to, uh, was it Nancy? Nancy, isn't it? Yeah, Nancy. Kerrigan. Yeah, Nancy Kerrigan. And then she changed her mind, but the guys carried out the thing anyway and broke her one's ankle, you know. But in the movie, I found the movie was not as good as documentary. I recommend the documentary. It's, it's very good. Yeah. I think you just need to listen to my two and a half minute song. You'll get the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. She wanted it so bad. She wanted to be, to, be, to be the champion, you know. And I also love your song, The Sofa Surfing. It's like that you know, brings back to the Beach Boys kind of buzz, you know. So you like the novelty songs. Do you I, like former President Trump? Have you listened uh, to that? One? No, I haven't listened. I listened to the Hillary Clinton song. And I, because I, I, you actually, that actually took, uh, took some, some sort of cult stat, status in the States. It went, what, 600 stations uh, it went to around the States? Yeah, yeah. The Hillary Clinton song. That was, I wrote that in, while I was in San Francisco. That's when uh, Clinton ran, Bill Clinton ran his first uh, campaign. Yeah. I, I had moved, part of my moving out to San Francisco 
was I just wanted to get away from anything having to do with the music business for a while because yeah. my first album, Contender, had come out on a label called Gold Castle, which was owned by Danny Goldberg. Danny was also managing Nirvana. And uh, it was a label with me, the Washington Squares, um, Joan Baez. And I think Kirk Kelly might have been on Gold Castle. I, I, don't, I can't remember whether he, whether he was on Gold Castle or SST. But anyway, a few months after that album came out, the label went bankrupt without telling me. And I was all set to tour. And I found out the tour was canceled when I called the first club in Chicago to get some details. And they're like, dude, your tour's canceled. I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, you know your record label's gone bankrupt, don't you? I had no idea. So... I just got sick of the whole thing and I moved out to San Francisco. I wasn't planning to do music anymore professionally. I was working in construction of all things, but I'd get up in the morning and there'd be this radio program. Their names were Goss and Garrett. I still remember these two DJs. They'd play like 1950s, 1960s, golden oldies. And I really liked the station and they were really funny. And one morning they were going off on Hillary Clinton. Uh, and so I, a friend of mine had, Billy Nova had lent me this, uh, four track tape player. I was like, ah, oh, you know what? I'm going to do a song for Hillary Clinton on this four track. The drums are pots and pans being hit with rolled up newspapers. <laughs> and I sent it off to them a few days later and said, Hey, I, I listen to you guys every morning. You really get my day going. I thought you, you might have fun with this. A few days later, I get up like I always do. And I put on the radio and I make my coffee and they're like, we usually play golden oldies, but we got this song in. We love it. We're going to play it for you now. It's called the Hillary Clinton song by Latch. I'm like, what? And my phone started ringing and they kept playing it. So I called in and uh, they sent it. They sent it to a station in Little, in Little Rock, Arkansas, where the Clintons were from. Yeah. That started playing it. And then it went out to like 600 stations. When, when Clinton, when Bill won and he comes out onto the steps of uh, the, the Capitol House or whatever, in yeah. Little Rock, right. yeah, to, yeah. Ex- to yeah. accept, you know, and he introduces Hillary and the crowd starts going, Hillary, Hillary, Hillary Clinton. I'm like, <laughs> you're singing my song. This is so amazing. So that was fun. <laughs> and that song was a perennial. I put that out every four years until this until this election yeah and this election i have a song called three words that will cheer you up former president trump (laughs) will you be making a a biden song now or are you a fan of biden um i i don't know if i'm a a fan of biden's but um I, i i would prefer anybody other than the toad that's currently occupying the Oval Office. Yeah. I, I, I think he's disconnected from the world because he's, he's been brought up in kind of, um, you know, affluence his whole life. He doesn't know what the, the real people are, are suffering from. You know what I mean? What, what they have to deal with every day. He just goes on tweets and comes up with random kind of stuff. He's mentally ill. He's a narcissistic uh, sociopath which would describe several leaders in the world today. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't the thing names. is, is that, <laughs> Jane, these people, they want us to talk about them. They are a thin crust above a huge amount of humanity. This is a handful of people. There's 8 billion, 10 billion people on this planet. These people don't matter, right? There's yeah. the Rebel Alliance, you know? 
there's, there's, there's the good guys. And so many people who are listening to your show right now, they might feel alone during these times or hopeless during these times. But one of the things that your show does and what art can do is it can connect people back to each other again to realize, wait a second, there's more of us than them. Good will win in the end. Love will win in the end, you know, and the rebel alliance will always blow up the Death Star. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Now, I want to bring it back to the Fringe. I want to know, were you working on anything this year before the pandemic hit for this year's Fringe Festival? I know you're not, you're involved in creating a lot of... uh, things to the festival so have you we working on anything special i had no plans for fringe this year this is um it's been a very uh it's been a hard very hard year this year for me i've had a lot of loss in my life okay um so uh the idea of doing the fringe wouldn't have even occurred to me yeah as a matter of fact i'm one of the sort of lucky ones where the worldwide pandemic has completely played into how I need my life to be right now. I, I was planning since uh, last November um, to take the entire year off and basically stay, stay home mm. and, and uh, work on my life and my, uh, my surroundings. And yeah. So the pandem- pandemic came and every time I start to think to myself, you know, the, 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 oh, I should be touring. Wait a second. I'm not even allowed to tour. There's yeah. no clubs open. Like yeah. cultivate your garden, cook good meals, you know. So I was not planning to do Fringe this year. I, I don't miss it. Um, I think the Fringe uh, just continually became more and more about money about ambition, about making it, um, and less and less uh, what I felt I wanted out of the fringe, um, which is um, discovering uh, discovering unknown things, uh, having a sense of danger in the air um, in a good way. Yeah. It, it just... Um, and I, 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 I started working more and more in the comedy scene and doing some stand-up and doing comedy and stuff. And that scene started to get um, very anxious about making it as well. You know, and, and the Fringe was a big part of it because every year, a couple of people from the Fringe go on to mega big stuff, you know. And between that and whatever they're calling cancel culture now, and the limit on free speech, which seems anti- you know, against everything. For me, freedom of speech is God. You know, like yeah. that is the most sacrosanct thing is freedom of speech. You know, um, the idea that people that you could get in trouble because you offended somebody. Like, what the hell? Yeah. You know, it's just crazy, and it it's so. I just never thought that we would start sliding back to that day, you know, post Lenny Bruce, where you had to be careful about what you said in public, you know, I, I, what's going to happen, you know, five years from now, I'm afraid that someone's going to find a photo of me from now walking my dog in the park on a leash 
and all of my shows will be canceled because did you know Latch used to own an animal? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. five years from now, it, everybody will be against owning animals, you know? So it'll be like, mm. oh, I can't believe he owned an animal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can't believe Mick Jagger slept with a 17-year-old girl. Dude, they were the Rolling Stones in the 1960s. Yeah, and they're still going strong. They were, they were, they were, they were 50, 60 years in the game. How long, how long are they Rolling Stones gone? A long time. Well, the Stones, the Stones never had the I'll die before I grow old attitude. I mean, all of their heroes were black dudes in their 70s when they were teenagers. You know, they, <laughs> they wanted to be old black dudes in their 70s, and now they finally are. So they're very happy. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you have any, um, or would you, are you doing virtual gigs? How are you finding virtual gigs now yourself? um during the so i i've i've been doing every monday night uh i do a live stream event uh through my facebook page which is facebook.com slash latch page yeah l-a-c-h and that's the page where you'll see my name is steve rogers uh yeah Um, so i also have an artist page which is latch world but i do the broadcast from the steve rogers page because um because of the way facebook is set up i can get more people to watch yeah and I know I should be exploring other platforms and working harder to bring more people in to watch. I just can't be bothered. I just want to perform every Monday night. And if one person's watching or a hundred people watching or a thousand people watching, I don't really care. I just, I just want to be able to have the joy of playing music and, and performing, you know? How are you enjoying Edinburgh? Is, are you happy to be living in Edinburgh now? Do you, you see yourself living here for the future? Well, I don't. I try not to think about the future because it yeah. doesn't exist. Um, I'm enjoying the here and now of where I am. My philosophy is to not strive but arrive. A lot nice. of people are constantly striving to that one day when they'll arrive. You know, when you have interviews and people will be like, "When did you know you arrived?" Well, it's when my third movie came out. And it's like, and so what happens then? Your fourth movie. I mean, have you ever, have you ever heard of a millionaire who didn't want, who didn't want to become a richer millionaire? You always want more. So that trap of everything will be okay as soon as I fill in the blank, as soon Mm. as I find a partner, as soon as I make more money, as soon as I get my health back, you have to let go of that. And you have to just say, you know what? I've arrived. And isn't life, isn't reality amazing? I mean, look at me and you right now, Shane. Like, I'm looking at you on a screen. You're in Dublin, I right? am in Dublin, yeah. We, we're doing this because you had happened into a club I was running several years ago in fake linear time. You know, this is all, when you actually drill down one or two layers, this is miraculous, wonderful, beautiful stuff going on. Just arrive you know just stop striving just arrive cultivate where you are you know once you've arrived you're like okay i've arrived well i'd like to paint that wall or i'd like to weed the garden or i'd like to cook a meal so you cultivate where you are Mm -hmm. and then you emanate the the one thing i wanted to say because i i i was talking earlier about the the art and music that's fed to us by the industrial complex Mm -hmm. However, like I was also talking about the Rebel Alliance, there are fantastic artists out there. Um, Some, even a few of them, like uh, Margot Price, are on uh, major labels. But uh, wherever you are listening to this now in your local town, 
there is somebody who is as talented and worth knowing as anybody you will ever see on TV or hear on the radio. And it is really vital to um, get out and discover those people, especially when the clubs start opening again. Um, you don't need somebody to tell you what's good. Art that's going to affect your life, you're, you'll usually discover, you'll happen upon. And I, I, I mean, I could name a whole bunch of people that people should check out, but just uh, let go of the dross of, the, of what's being fed to you and explore a bit and you will find life-changing art wherever you are. I just wanted to add that. No, but you're right in that sense, you know, because there is lots of talent out there, you know, and, and there's lots of places like the Anti-Hoot that give opportunities for talent that haven't been being discovered yet or haven't like uh don't have a fan base and maybe we'll never get to that level because it's sometimes about being in the right place at the right time you know what i mean it doesn't matter you may have all the talent but you just may not picked up because you know someone's not in the room there may not be someone there to, to who, who who has the power to push you to a ne- to the next level you know what i mean Brian Epstein only walked down the steps of one club. You know, he's not, yeah. Brian Epstein is dead and his successor is not, probably not going to walk down the steps of the cavern in your town and discover you. So do it yourself. Don't wait. Don't ask permission. Yeah. Don't wait for someone. I mean, that was one of the wonderful things about punk. Punk said, you know, you don't need the limousine. You don't need the, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer keyboard setup that costs mm-hmm. thousands of dollars. And anti-folk, um whittled it down even further and said you just need a piece of wood it's six strings and the truth man yeah well up until a few years ago i used to go to see the pogues and mm. used to yeah you know, oh the pogues and it was always we, it, we called it a christmas eve eve gig because it was always the 22nd december uh okay wow on, yeah oh yeah and of course fairy tale was always always on the agenda but i love songs like um do you like the Pogues? You must, you must, you know the Pogues. Oh yeah, I love the Pogues. Uh, yeah, I love like uh, Fiesta. It's like crazy, kind of like up and down song. It's it's just yeah. mental, you know. Or, or I like the kind of slower songs and the, you know, the the real kind of like uh, just classic punk. Like he's he's a real real punk, you know. Like he was just put on this earth to to uh, to perform these wonderful songs and, and write these wonderful lyrics. You know what I mean? There was a a good Irish. Um songwriting scene in New York when I was there. It was based out of a club called Chenet Cafe. Okay. And it was a very small cafe. Mm-hmm. But um, that's where Jeff Buckley was first. When he came to New York, that's where he would first play. And there's a fellow named... Do you know the songwriter Mark Geary? I've heard the name, but I'd know, I'd, I'd not, I don't know the person's work now. He's worth looking up. He's, in, he's moved okay. back to Ireland since... Okay. Um, and I always, I always loved listening to, uh, see, I, I didn't like the fake folk music, but traditional folk music that's ancient. Mm -hmm. So like that old Irish folk music is just amazing. You know, and some of those, some of those songs are just so macabre, you know, and, you know, ghosts and misty glens and all that stuff. But, uh, and and the melody 
of Irish folk music is actually there's similarities in my opinion between Irish traditional folk music and Jewish traditional folk music like klezmer music has a affinity to Irish music. It's wonder, all wonderful stuff. I thought I, the Irish singers were writing the most miserable, melodic songs of misery until I came to Edinburgh. I was like, oh man, you got nothing on the songwriters in Edinburgh. All their songs are just, <laughs> they're all so miserable. They, they sing it with such great melody and the humor is so deadpan. It's terrific. Uh, the, the Edinburgh scene uh, has a lot in common with the Irish scene that way, in, in, from an outsider's viewpoint. Now, it's been a while since I've, I've been in the Edinburgh scene. I've not seen it. I've not been, I've, since I left Edinburgh in 2015, I haven't been back. So I must, I must go back again and check it out again. It's a lovely city. It's a small city. It's, it's picturesque. But apart from that, I, I didn't find Edinburgh the place for me, but it's a nice place, you know. Well, it's overshadowed by Glasgow. The city isn't all that's super supportive. You know, it's all about the fringe. The rest of the year, you know, you're sort of on your own. Also, it's, there's the, it gets very clicky, um, like a lot of scenes, you know? Yeah, for sure. But at the same time, there's some really wonderful songwriters and there's some good alternative community uh, in Edinburgh. The literary scene is amazing. The poetry scene is amazing. Yeah, totally. 100%. It's like, it's like the, the musicians are better than the scene. <laughs> <laughs> no, I used to go to Blind Poetics. I, st- I started off doing poetry in Blind Poetics uh, over the Blind Poet over... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know the name of the street, but I know the club. And uh, I, I used to just like, just, just, just go around... Um, different clubs and, and check out other poets and because spoken word poetry instead of just reading like my poetry is reading from like a, a sheet sheet notes yeah. theirs is all spoken word it's all like like loud poets and stuff like that very much like yeah, yeah, yeah. performance poetry you know which is something yeah. as next level stuff for me i was like i i enjoyed it but it just wasn't my style you know but it's, it's so a, fun it's a big scene it's a big it is scene. massive scene. i really like i really like the loud poets as yeah. a matter of fact um on the Bandcamp site, the introductory video yeah. is some of the loud poets yeah. uh, doing a sort of comedy. It's like a comedy parody of of, of liking Latch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know it's not for everyone, but I love the fact that I can connect with you. And I've only met you once, but I, I just remember that time from five, six, seven years ago when, when you, I was introduced to you and you, you gave me a chance to perform on, on an open mic stage or, an, or your anti-hoot stage. And basically what for me an open mic stage is, is not about comedy. It's about music all the way. And I remember doing a gig yeah. in, in Brunsfield, just across the meadows there in Edinburgh. Yeah. And I, I stood out like a sore thumb because you're getting up there trying to be funny or trying to be silly. And they're just, all they're, they're doing is just, is just is jamming away and the guitars are, sing, are singer, singing. And you're like, you just, you don't fit in, you know, at least with your club, with your scene, you give like comedians and artists and music, musicians and poets a chance to shine. And that's, and that's something that um, I'll always remember. And I, I think if, if it's still going, keep it going, no matter what, you know, keep that, keep that candle going because it's, it's a great scene. You know what I mean? It gives people a chance to, perform when other stages are not suited to them you know what i mean well yeah thank you so much it's 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 not happening now yeah it wasn't you know i i stopped running mics and stuff because life was like i told you yeah i had to take care of a lot of other stuff yeah um in edinburgh there's a fellow named cameron uh fair who Mm -hmm. was running a 
uh, singer-songwriter night. I think it was called Live at the Loft. Okay. Um, and he was doing it really well, the way I like it, you know, yeah, with, a certain, yeah, yeah. with a combination of irreverence, but warmth at the same time. Mm-hmm. And he's a wonderful songwriter. So a really great scene was forming around there. The pandemic's blown everything out of the water. We're, we're, we are in times that uh, we will understand better a few years from now when we look back and we can, our face is too close to the picture to see it. <laughs> no, it, it, it's, it's, look, I've had to get used to doing like Zoom kind of conversations with friends. And now the, it, the pandemic uh, restrictions have lessened. So you can go and see your friends and keep that distance or whatever. But it's, 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 it's a, a new skill you have to learn to be able to talk to someone and try to communicate and, you know, express yourself just screen to screen. You know what I mean? So what you're saying, there's something else when you're actually in person. When you went back, when you were able to go back and hang out with some friends, even though you were social distancing, yeah, did you get this feeling of, oh my God, I missed this? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, totally. It's just, it's just that kind of like feeling to you know belong and to be able to you know just just to feel connected on a on an emotional yeah. level, but on a physical level in a way as well. And so I think that gives me hope. What you say because. People are people talk about like, will we ever go to clubs again after this? Even when it's safe, are we are we going to go back? And I think everyone will because they will miss that. I yeah. think it is in our bones, mm-hmm. in our DNA, to sit around a campfire, going all the way back to when humans first were sitting around the campfire, telling stories, singing songs. That is something we need. Like we need air and we need water yeah we need you know it's been said that the inability to tell one's story is the main source of insanity yeah when you're unable to tell your story when you're stifled when you can't tell your story that's why that phrase i can't breathe is so jarring when you Mm. can't breathe when you can't tell your story you go crazy when people are able to start coming out of their little hobbit holes and gather around the campfires and pubs and wherever mm. and tell their stories and tell their songs again, they're going to be like, oh my God, we missed this. I'm so glad it's back. I totally agree. It's, it's, it's something that uh, we may have taken for granted before the pandemic, but now we're actually like, we will never take it for granted again, you know? You know, try to connect with people that you... And I, I, I've, I've tried to connect with people like yourself who I haven't talked to in, in a while because I don't work as well over social media with regards to communication. I, like, I like this where we can talk and we can get some sort of connection, but on a social media message, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same kind of uh, ring, you know? Not at all. No. Anyway, Latch... And once again, it was it was awesome to talk to you. Uh, have you? Do you have to walk that dog? Because I don't want to leave that dog waiting. You know, you never leave yeah, the dog. Yeah, <laughs> I should get, I should get going. Please um, let people please let people know about the fan club. I will. That's, uh, my only source of income at the moment. I will. I'll share every whenever I can. I'll share the, uh, your fan club, and of course, I'm part of your fan club, and I'll I'll, I'll keep up Thank to date with what's what's the latest happenings. Um, Thanks for coming on and uh, this will be up very soon and uh, take it easy. Thanks. Keep up the good work, Shane. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Take care, brother. All right. Take it easy, man. I'll see you later. Bye-bye. So yes, that was Latch. He's a 
singer-songwriter, he's a poet, a comedian, and he's a lovely guy indeed. Now, once again, this is Shane. This is Heartlines. If you like what you hear today, guys, please like, subscribe, share. Remember, you're always welcome here on Heartlines. Take it easy. Bye-bye.